Welcome to the 42nd episode of the Connectivity Podcast. I'm Matthias Fridström and I've spent the last 25 years inside the Connectivity community. In this pod, we invite guests to deep dive into one of many subjects to simply learn more about connectivity. And in this 42nd episode, I'm extremely happy to continue to talk to Michael Potter from Geeks Without Frontiers. You said in, in the sort of in the 90s, you struggled against the big incumbents in Europe. I guess now you're struggling against other stuff in, in Africa and Asia with uh, kind of what we believe in. And if we generalize with a bit more corruption, uh, bureaucracy, regulation problems, might even not even have a regulation, you know. What would you say is the biggest obstacle that these countries have to overcome to, to get somewhere? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, what is interesting, you just as just from a governance point of view, you know, you and you see it all all over the world, but which is that people who are in charge, let's say, of education or even you know medical care, uh, and these things, both of those things, fortunately, generally work pretty well in Scandinavia. That's the good news, right? But in many countries around the world, um, oftentimes the people in charge of education they lose track of of what why they do it, and so instead, and then at some point they don't really think so much about the kids. They think about other issues. They think about labor unions or they think about accreditation. They think about all so everything else except the students. <laughs> and I think that in um, in a lot of developing countries uh, and you see it with Starlink. I mean, the, one of the fantastic and we work with Starlinks. We've done uh, uh, we did a installation uh, in um, with some Native American tribes here in the United States, uh, these are very rural areas, very, very difficult to get connectivity. But the great news is that Starlink for the most part solves the technical challenges of getting to very difficult places around the world, very uh, very remote areas. But in many, many countries around the world, Starlink is still not legal to to go into service. And so, and, 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 and and very much like Scandinavia, there's a lot of laws related to security, uh, intercept of communications. So, you know, so an African country or, you know, uh, another developing uh, region, they can say, hey, we want to do, you know, communications intercept. So we want you to have um, a ground station in this country. And um, and the good news for Starlink is very low cost to put in ground station. But the important thing, they don't need a ground station. Technically, they don't need a ground station. Technically, they, they could do the service tomorrow without the ground station. But uh, in a lot of countries, that's looked at as economic development. That's looked at as opportunity to do uh, security intercept. And I think that um, uh, but but also there's the, uh, there's other economic forces that they're trying to protect. So in some countries. They like in Indonesia, for example, they're allowing Starlink to do uh, uh, backbone communications with the cellular companies, but not to the end users. Right. So the interesting in almost every country, these problems could be solved instantly. But there's a lot of resistance. People don't want to move fast and 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 uh, a lot of reluctance about control. You know, who controls this thing? 
And uh, it, it's been that way for decades. And, you know, and unfortunately, it's not going to change quickly. But we've everyone's got to put a lot of pressure. And in particular, the multilateral uh, lending agencies, particularly the World Bank, Asian Development Bank, have to put tremendous pressure for efficiency and um and efficient, you know, efficiency and, um, you know, and just cost savings. And, and that's and that's how you're going to end up solving these problems over time, I think. OK. Oh, that's interesting. I also know that you're you're kind of looking for partners in this as well. You know, if anyone wants to join, you know, what, what do you want in a partner here in, the, in this project? You know, what are you after? What type of companies? Yeah. So uh, about 18 months ago, we were approached by uh, Intel. And they had created an internal initiative called N50, which stands for the next 50% of the planet. And it's about digital adoption for the next 50% of the planet. And in 18 months, we have over 150 partner organizations that have signed up to become N50 partners. And these are many, many big organizations. I mean, we have Intel, we have Dell, we have T-Mobile, we have uh, Arizona State University, you know, many, many large organizations. And it's and and the good news is that there's not a charge for an annual membership fee, but it's what we do ask is people either to join a project or to bring a project. So we're really asking, and so it's really a participation with a big focus on participation. And I think all around the world, there are uh, organizations that like to talk about all the challenges, uh, but they don't really do they they they're not set up to do things. They're not action oriented. They're really they you know they're set up to. Uh, to really provide a platform for discussion. And what we set out to do is really to create a platform for participation and impact. So it's just kind of a different way of looking at things. Okay. Oh, that's really, really cool. All right. Um, uh, another thing I've seen and I've read when I read about you is that you've done a lot of movies or documentaries and so on, you know. How, how did you end up in, in this track, you know? When, when did you start this part of your journey? Well, you know, it's, it's very interesting because I refer to myself as a, a the reluctant director, the reluctant producer. <laughs> and um, I was involved um, with uh, a whole team of people that did a very, very unusual project that that um, that that not everybody, even experts in the field in, in the, the space field uh, are not fully aware of. And this was a team uh, of entrepreneurs that bought the uh, Russian Mir space station in outer space. And they went through an effort to commercialize it, to try to turn it into a private hotel and a private research platform. And uh, unfortunately, you know, when the uh, when, when we had the 2000 stock market meltdown for the high tech companies, uh, these particular entrepreneurs were, were badly affected. And unfortunately, uh, the result was that the Mir space station was deorbited and crashed into the Pacific Ocean. So I wanted a film. I wanted to do the film that told the story of this amazing project that very few people knew about. You know, and I know many, many, many people who are you know executives in outer space. You know, who are policy experts that uh, run national space programs, and very few of them know this amazing story. So these were really the first. Um, uh, the first. Uh, Outer space entrepreneurs. In fact, the title of that documentary film was called uh, "Orphans of Apollo." So this was the whole generation of people that had believed that that humans would be living and working on the moon, living and working on Mars. And then, when uh, a, a, under the Nixon administration, uh, they ended up discontinuing the Apollo program. 
there was a whole generation of young people that just said, uh, who were young at the time, uh, who said, hey, this is unacceptable. We can't have the government lie to us like this. We're going to take these things into our own hands. And that's really, and, and so, you know, people like Bezos and people like Musk and people like Richard Brands, and these were all part of, they, they're all in the film, but these are all the, the orphans of Apollo. And um, so I originally pitched that film concept to the famous director, Werner Herzog, and Werner said, well, you know, if you do all the work and you sign all the releases, and then he said, I'll think about it. And I just said, well, that's crazy. If I'm going to do all the work, I might as well just do it, which was probably a bad, you know, probably a bad decision. But um, but it was super fun. And um, it's been, uh, you know, it, it's it's uh, been a great cult, uh, cult classic. And I get a lot of a lot of people asking about it. And there are museums that now want to curate all the material that were related to it. And uh, so it was good fun. And so, yeah, that was that was how I got into it. But no background in filmmaking. But, uh, you know, uh, I sort of got my, you know, my master's in film when I when I embarked on that project. Yeah. <laughs> Is there any way you can see it today? You know, if I want to see mm. it tomorrow. I will organize I will organize for you to see that. <laughs> yeah. It's and, and, and you know, there's a anyways, it, it was it was available on Amazon. And then Amazon went through a period recently where they took a lot of documentary films off. So I'll, I'll work that out with you. <laughs> that sounds great. Then I know, you know, I, uh, one of my previous guests was Chris Stott here and, and he, he he told me about the university, that movie. And I know you were also part of that one. Uh, how, did, how did you end up in that one? Yeah, and by the way, Chris Stott and Nicole Stott and uh, an astronaut, Ron Guerin, they were all part of the founding board of directors of Geeks Without Frontiers. So that was uh, great. And they've all been tremendously helpful, tons of solidarity, very, very, um, you know, supportive of everything we've done. So Peter Diamandis, who was the uh, founder of the International Space University, uh, then went out to create the Singularity University. And the Singularity University was um, a university uh, that uh, is organized over 12 weeks where, where students could study the most important exponential fields uh, that are changing our, our world. And so that includes everything from genetic engineering to 3D printing to, um, you know, to, you know, to many, many other subjects. And, um, and, you know, it was just an incredibly um, exciting, fast moving project that took place in the middle of Silicon Valley and just had uh, all sorts of amazing visionaries, you know, visionaries, uh, you know, with uh, nanotech and just, just, you know, AI, you know, and, and this was, this was, you know, 12 years ago. So the timing was super, super interesting. And, and I think, you know, and, and one, of, one of the things that, and of course, you know, 3D printing is now, is now incredibly, I want to say mature, well, certainly compared to 12 years ago, it's mature, but uh, it, it still has a lot more potential, but you know, now 3D printing is being used on rockets NASA is very, very serious about 3D printing on the moon in terms of habitats and so forth. So it was just a great, uh, a great project, and um, and you know, and and it's brought that thinking all over the planet about you know how can you have the greatest amount of impact by just locking in on exponential technologies. And I think that you know the most recent story about AI and chatbot. I mean that that is that is classic. Um, you know, exponential tech. And you see these um, these uptake in users, you know, and, and you know, it goes back to 
things like Facebook and then Instagram, Twitter, and, and now chatbot, where just the, the, the millions and millions of people that adopt in the first few months are just remarkable. And this, that wasn't possible. I mean, if you compare that to the old days of fax machines and other things, it's beyond comprehension, but that's the power, that's the power of exponential technology. And I think that it's a great way to think, and it's a great way for policymakers to think. And I think, you know what, another area that is, that has opportunity, but is also difficult for policymakers is something like cryptocurrency, you know, because these technologies are moving exponentially, but the problem is that government and policy are linear. So what happens? How, how does a government regulate something like AI or how do they regulate cryptocurrency when those develop like this? And they're like, oh, yeah, when we come back from summer break, we'll study it and we'll issue a report next year. It doesn't make sense. You know, it, 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 and so really and technology will not wait for and that. And this is important. And this is going to be this is going to be particularly difficult in Europe. Exponential technologies doesn't wait for policymakers. It's too powerful. It's unstoppable. And um, and so, yeah, when it comes to all, you know, and in, 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 in also look at the Ukraine war and the exponential power of 3D printing and, and drones, very powerful. And, you know, and those countries that think they're going to do things the old fashioned way, it's not going to work. And, you know, I, I'm involved with another uh, initiative dealing with France right now. And I have to, have to tell you, the the people that I interface in France they're thinking like in the 1800s. That's their that's their mentality. That's their reference point. Uh, is the 1800s? And it's like good luck. I mean, because technology is way too way too much energy. Yeah, but how, but how do you how do you what you you mentioned AI here? You know, how do you how do you think we can control that or should control that in the future? Because I guess in some way, AI in in the wrong person's hand could be very dangerous. You know, in some way, people need to agree on how to use it yeah yeah so these are and it's challenging and i and i I don't have all the answers i don't have all the answers but i will say like you know there was a unesco report that just came out two weeks ago and they said uh you know basically they were saying we don't think that there should be smartphone devices in educ in the educational context (laughs) you know that 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 this is distracting and it's, it's a bad thing so um but but just imagine that around. And so this is a this is a UNESCO global initiative, and they're saying no, we don't we don't think that that makes sense. But for me, I think uh, video, you know, um, teaching kids to make videos on their phones. I mean, how powerful is that? Or teaching the kids to use AI to change their lives and to somehow pretend like this stuff doesn't exist. I, I think that that is. I think that's wrong. I, I think that that's wrong. And so I think you do have to have the balance of, um, you know, obviously you don't want people to be able to make weapons of mass destruction using AI. But the flip side is you don't want to deny young people the ability to utilize these technologies that can really change their lives. So I, I but, but the, in the meantime, it doesn't matter what the politicians say because it's, it's moving way too fast. And I think that, you know, uh, the Khan Academy, which has done a fantastic job globally, uh, now has this Conamigo, which is the AI chatbot. And the way that they've handled it is very interesting, which is that it, it doesn't give the kids answers. It just tells them how to think about it, you know? And so that, and that's, that's a good, that's a good first step. You know, don't, don't, don't let the kid, don't let the kids cheat. But, um, 
but help them think about the problem differently. I think so. I think those are the the longer term ways to think about these things. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Really interesting. Yeah, because it's I guess it's a it's going to be a global global thing, and and it, as you said, it's not going to be stoppable, but we need to control it in some smart way. Uh, Um, I'm, I'm sort of I'm, I'm, I've seen that you were part of the World Communication Awards jury a very long time ago, and I'm, I'm always curious about that because that's a big deal for us. You know, that's the kind of Academy Awards for the telecom industry. How come you ended up in in that jury in the beginning? Were you part of that? I saw you were the chairman of that <laughs> jury for a while. Yeah. So, and that was really a lot of the work we had done. Uh, you know, building a, a pan-European competitive telecommunications company. So, I think, I think. People thought, and they thought that that was that that made a lot of sense, and that was innovative. So, um, you know, and and I think that they wanted, again, they wanted there was an uh, an urge to try to think about things a little bit differently than they had been thought about before. And you know, we we did the best we can. I mean, you know, it's it's fascinating, right? Because these uh, the, this industry moves so quickly. That you know maybe you're not always 100% right, but um, but the important thing is to really try to recognize innovators and disruptors, and in some ways you know try to acknowledge or reward them in some in some small way. Yeah. Do you have any cool stories from that time? You know, some <laughs> companies that had some yeah. cool ideas that maybe never turned out to be a good idea or something like that. No, I mean I, I would just say that it was you know the the, the takeaway was just that really trying to shift it a little bit more towards innovation and disruption. I think that that was, you know, that was the key thing, but um, yeah. And, and just, you know, the, the one, the one funny thing, I mean, we, and, and I think everyone who's been in this industry, you know, thinks about a lot is that, you know, there, there were moments uh, in all of our careers where we thought, okay, this is how things are going to be forever. You know, I mean, we just, you know, cause that's, we always look at how things were last week or last year. And then we try to extrapolate. And, you know, I think a lot of people missed the Internet infrastructure and kind of IP uh, version six, just, you know, in terms of backbone networks. We had all these complicated telco networks with all this weird equipment. And at the time, it all seemed like it made sense. And it made sense from where we had started historically. But um, but it just got stripped out by by, you know, by these new architectures. And I think that's positive. I think it's it's more resilient. It's more positive. Um, you know, and of course, there's there's a dark side to um, to the global you know global connectivity revolution, and you know part of that is the cyber hacking and these other these other dark side issues. Which again, I mean, you know, and that's the dark side of exponential because that's one of the most exponential activities that we can imagine is cyber hacking. And you know, most countries are years behind in terms of how do you think about that, yeah. but it's very powerful, very powerful. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, we're we're getting towards the close, uh, toward the end of this conversation. It's super, really great. Uh, if you think about five years in time, you know, if you and I would have the same conversation in five years, what what would be different and what would be more of the same? Do you think, you know, if you think about yeah. <laughs> some of the years ahead, yeah. which is sometimes it's impossible to even believe what's going to happen next yeah, month? Yeah, I mean, I. I think this um, momentum of decentralization and kind of empowering um, people is, is important. And you know, it's interesting because a lot, a lot, there's a lot of obsession uh, right now on these big social media giants that run the whole world. And you know, Elon Musk runs the world, and Mark Zuckerberg runs the world, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. 
And I think that um, if the technology and the markets align, we may end up empowering individuals and empowering small businesses, I think, in a greater way. You know, and I think that in a, and that's kind of the vision of Web3, which is like, you know, allowing that kind of direct relationship between uh, the creators uh, and the and, and consumers. And, and I think it's powerful in the music industry. I think it'll be powerful in the art industry. And I just think in everything we can think of. And I guess the thing that's probably the same is that, you know, the people will <laughs> probably still be unhappy with who are the winners and who are the losers, right? They'll always be unhappy with that, even though it'll be different. It'll be different winners and different losers. I think people will be unhappy with that. But I think, but I, I do think that if if that vision wins out, it's a very, very good thing for the planet. And I think, and I think this is the, and this is one of the reasons why I believe in it is that, you know, governance is a very difficult thing right now where, you know, globally, everyone seems to be struggling with, you know, how do you, how do you govern better? You know, uh, and, and I think that, um, that decentralization allows people to be empowered to do good things, even if they're working in a failed state. And I'm, and I use failed state in the broadest way, not like Afghanistan, you know, Everyone thinks of Afghanistan when we think of failed states, but you know um, there there are a lot. Of, you know, there's a, a very strong populist uh, movement uh, throughout you know Europe in the United States. Uh, there's been uh, all sorts of um, coups in Africa. We have now one string of a thousand miles of of countries with coups. But if those if those governments are unable to deliver, it's a great thing if people have technologies where they can succeed regardless of the governments. And that includes, and that may include things like digital currencies or cryptocurrencies, not, not, not for mafia purposes, not for drug running purposes, but just to allow people to be successful. Like if, uh, if, if you have, you know, a hundred percent inflation in a country or 200% inflation in a country, and you're having devaluation of the currency, I mean, you should be able to sidestep that if you're an average citizen, not, not for bad purposes, but just to protect yourself. So that's my vision of, of, the, of, of a nice outcome in the future if everything goes properly. <laughs> oh, well, that, sounds, that sounds actually really, really good. And it sounds like a perfect end to this discussion. You know, I would love to talk to you more, but, but here, here we are. So, so Michael, thank you a lot for, for being here. So thanks a lot. Yeah, Matthias, thank you and for, for uh, organizing this and really look forward to, to listening to more, more of your podcast in the future. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We will soon be back with a new guest, so please follow us on X, not Twitter at ConnectivityPod for updates. Stay tuned until next time.